0: And one of the three things I want to tell you about to make the context for what I want to teach about has to do with my trip home from the south of France. It doesn't have to do with the south of France, it has to do with airport signs. But there were three three things that I had in mind to start uh, this talk with. So um, the, the airport sign is the second thing. The first is a poem by Billy Collins, so you probably know Billy Collins poetry uh, he was the last poet laureate before the current one in this country and it's a wonderful poet. I keep buying this particular book sailing alone around the wor- uh, around the room and then giving it away so I have to write to Amazon again and get some more. I should actually order six at a time. The name of this poem is, uh, and this is related to the Dharma issue that I mean to discuss, is another reason why I don't keep a gun in the house. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on, on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog when the record finally ends he's still barking sitting there in the oboe section barking his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians sit in respectful silence listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) So, I imagine you get the point of that particular poem. I love it. I've read it here a couple of times, haven't I? I think that's a brilliant way of saying that it's possible to say, okay, here is the mind crunched down on something that's offensive to it. And there's a way in which it can relax and say, listen, this is happening, but it's not that bad. It's okay. There's a context around it. As a matter of fact, if you make the mind wide enough, you can make a context around it that makes it amazing. I really think that part of the practice that we're doing here of paying attention is the, or maybe the whole of the practice of paying attention is paying attention to the way the mind suddenly crunches down on something, squeezes out everything else that's true, and and locks the heart in suffering. This becomes the only thing that's true in the world, and it's a painful thing, and we forget that there's a life around it. It's a surprise. The, the reason that that poem always catches me up is it such a surprise way of saying, here's this thing, but really, look at it. It's the famous barking dog <coughs> solo that established Beethoven as an innovative genius. That's a whole other way to hold that situation. When, people, when I meet people who take a situation in their life that I think, oh dear, if that happened to me with my children, with my grandchildren, with my husband, with my this, with my that, and they have a mind that they say, well, you know, Uh, They're just doing what they need to do now, and uh, I'm really confident in their ability in the end. I think, wow, I want that mind, you know, I want that mind that says, okay, it's this, but how do I know what it is in the bigger sense? I don't know. When I anguish about things, it's not only because I have a certain news that something is happening, but I also project what must be the absolute outcome of that news. How do I know? Maybe it's this. So I want to be able to talk about the fact of uh, we could know things in a new way. We could see things in a new way. This is about seeing in a new way. And talk about it in terms of meditation practice. One of the words that's often used in terms of describing the mind that's able to accommodate is uh, flexible, certainly. The meditation uh, texts call it malleable. Instead of crunching down on something and getting stuck, it says, well, it's this, but maybe it's this, and maybe it's that, and maybe it's that. The the line that one of my teachers said years and years ago, uh, in terms of something that was unpleasant arriving in somebody's life, a small unpleasantness or a momentary unpleasantness like a barking dog or a major unpleasantness, like uh, something terribly wrong with one's health or the health of someone that you love or some really great loss in a life, and that the, the ultimate malleable minds would be the ability to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, and to be all right with that in some way. It isn't what I wanted, it's not to convince yourself when life makes you hands you lemons, you make lemonade. Some things are not lemonade. Some things are really bitter pills to swallow. But how to be able to say this is a bitter pill? But okay, I don't have a choice. What else can I do in addition to the bigger bitter pill? What can I do around it? It's really the relationship to what is happening. We've been talking a lot this week as we've been teaching up the hill about a lot of new people new to meditation, and uh, they have lots of questions about their meditation experience. say, as I sit, I'm very sleepy. I can't get over being sleepy. Or this one story is going through my mind about uh, this skirmish that I'm in with my partner, with my child, with my parent, and I'm so upset about it because that same story keeps replaying in my mind, and I wish I could put the story out of my mind. I wish I could have this sleepiness be out of my mind. And what really we keep talking about is it's not about uh, an ideal mind state. It's not about having this or that present in the mind and other things not. It's about being able to say, this what's there, and I can make a space for it. I'm very sad about this, but I'm all right about the sadness. I'm doing all right with it. I have a place to hold it. I, I notice that as I talk about it, I keep doing like this as if to make, the, but, it, but it is something like that. Don't you feel when your mind gets caught on something that it goes, and then it's like in a <coughs> vise. And then when that passes, you feel, okay, I can breathe again. So I want to talk about we could uh, uh, we could know something in a new way. I want to talk a little bit. I want just because I want to tell you about this image that I saw in the airport that I was so captivated with. About what is it that we're supposed to know if we're going to know in a new way? So here was this image. I I, uh, I had several flights to get home. So there was a lot of boarding lounges and a lot of waiting on long lines to board planes. uh, There was an ad, I don't know if it's in this country, but it was an ad that I saw in all the airports as I was waiting. It was a big ad and it's got a picture of people in business attire, men and I suppose some women, although I don't remember, dressed in the kind of way they've got uh, attaché cases and portfolios. And uh, it's an ad for some sort of telecommunications device, and all these people are standing on, also standing in a line in a, in in an airport waiting to go somewhere. So they're in an airport on, in the ad, and for some reason, I guess there's an arrow designating one particular man who's standing there with a relaxed enough visage and with his attaché case. And it says in uh, the caption underneath, portentous caption, it says, this man does not know that he has 32 unanswered
1: emails. (laughs) (laughs) Like this is
0: a dreadful thing that if he knew that he had 32 unanswered emails and answered them, then everything would be all right. His life would be fine. He would be happy. And of course, if you had that telecommunications device that you could do with a modem in airports, he could be answering his email while standing there in the line. So, This is the big tragedy. This man does not know that he has 32 unanswered emails. So maybe it caught my mind so much because I was thinking about the fact that I did not check my email for three weeks. And I, and I thought to myself, whoa, I wonder how many unanswered emails I have. So that was one reason. But I was immediately in my way of editing things that have been written, I thought to myself, I could rewrite this ad, same picture, and I would put in the caption, this man does not know that his view, more important, this man does not know that his view about what is valuable or important in life is ultimately going to exhaust him, is going to turn out to be a bottomless pit of desire. and his emails will not end his suffering. (laughs) Uh, It It won't sell any devices for that company, but about what is important. So then I had a lot more time in the airport, so I rewrote the (laughs) caption again. This man does not know that unreckoned with greed, hatred, and delusion are creating pain all over the world people are killing each other, they are ruining the planet, they're despoiling the air and the water because they've forgotten that we could do it another way. And we have forgotten that one's own personal material gain, one's own preoccupation with one's own works is the way that this world got itself into this trouble and it can get out of that trouble if it discovered that. So, so much for my rewriting ads. They didn't ask me to write the ad, but this man does not know that he has 32 unanswered emails. Anyway, so I want to say we could know in a new way what is important to know. I want to tell you about what's inspiring to know. I think, I'm pretty sure I told you just before I left that uh, I had begun to read Tracy Kidder's book about uh, Paul Farmer, and I finished it on the trip. This is the best nonfiction book I've read in a year, easily. I'm so inspired by it that um, I'm inspired by the idea that, well, you know, when you study Buddhism, you hear about bodhisattvas, about people who have so uh, transcended the pull of personal self-centered need that they are just completely available for the well-being of all beings. And then you think about, okay, so the Buddha gave his life uh, or spent his life from the time of his enlightenment until he died in his 80s, according to the story, teaching and going all over India and teaching his Dharma of liberation. So you say, okay, that was a bodhisattva act. Uh, You think about people who really have uh, apparently a spirit of dedication to the well-being of others that's amazing. This is a contemporary living person. Tracy Kidder is a journalist, a remarkable writer who wrote about Paul Farmer, who's a living person in his late 50s, I I would judge from the time that he was in medical school, who somehow, he's the fourth of six children it's an interesting book to read because you think about how would a person get born or grow up who is so completely committed to changing the world and uh, easing the suffering of other people. How do people get to be saints? He's the fourth of six children in a poor family uh, without, with a particularly uh, mean-spirited father, a very loving mother, according to the book. Um, a Catholic family in Alabama, living, a, a, a poor Catholic family living in Alabama. And somehow or another, he's the fourth of these six children. He's very bright and he gets scholarships and he goes to, gets to go to school. His intellect is tremendous. His zeal for looking out for other people is tremendous. Before he starts medical school at Harvard, he uh, I, can't, I can't remember exactly the sequence of events, but he goes to Haiti, which is the poorest of the poor in the Western northwestern Hemisphere. And he is so moved, particularly by the plight of poverty and illness there, but also uh, uh, the uh, touched by the remarkable number of people, tremendous number of people uh, suffering and dying with tuberculosis, which is a treatable disease these days. All of those things together, he goes to medical school and somehow early, from early on in his medical school career, even before he graduates, he's worked out a deal with his professors that he's only there half the year or four months a year, and the rest of the time he's in (coughs) Haiti putting together a health clinic and then getting money to build a health center, and then training health workers. And uh, and becoming one of the now foremost, if not the foremost, infectious disease specialists in the world, knowledgeable, uh, discovering and, and working out ways of treating people with multiply resistant strains of tuberculosis, doing amazing work. So I started to read the book, and uh, and uh, I was so touched by his really giving his life to this, working incredibly hard, living in an incredibly difficult circumstances. And uh, right away I start to compare myself to...
1: <laughs>
0: you know, I live a very easy life. I, you know, I, I live in Sonoma County, I get to teach here. You know, people say, well, you're teaching the Dharma, helping people. But I'm sitting here in the middle of the garden spot of, of, the, of the world, my house is comfortably situated. My life is comfortable. You know, I have friends who are dharma teachers who are teaching in remote places and carrying the word of truth to all kinds of places. And uh, long ago, I decided uh, that that clearly was not in the cards for me, given given my given my anything my my level of courage, or my or my if I say it truthfully, my level of fearfulness at my level of distress if I'm not living in a place where I feel comfortable. But I realized after a little bit that it was it didn't make any sense at all for me to think about, oh, look what Paul Farmer is doing and look what I'm doing. I realized everybody's in the life doing what they're supposed to be doing in their life. They come with their particular talents and their particular potential. And I, instead of feeling, aha, look what he's doing and I'm not doing, I think to myself, I celebrate the fact that he has this remarkable potential, has this tremendous intellect, this tremendous zeal, and um, an inner push beyond anything I've read about a, a living person. The two vignettes from the book that stand out in my mind to tell you, is one, uh, Tracy Kidder follows him around, literally, for years and years to write this book and talks to everybody who knows him and listens to him in interactions with people. And uh, after the first time he'd gone to Haiti and uh, followed him around there in his work, um, he said uh, he often noticed that in Paul's room in the morning His bed was unrumpled, but he hadn't gotten into it. He hadn't slept in his bed. Sleeps very few hours a night. And he said to him, uh, "You know, where were you last night? You weren't in your bed. And he said, well, I lay down on it. He said, but it sometimes happens to me that I lie down on my bed. This is a big hospital complex with lots of patients there. He said, and I have the feeling that there's somebody in this complex that's in pain that's not getting treated for it at that second, and I could help them. So I can't lie in the bed. I have to get up and go and look around. I think to myself, I'm so moved by that. It doesn't matter that I can't do that or that that's not what's in me. It matters that it's possible for human beings to do that. Mm. So I can think of doing it a little bit, or I can think of how good it is to be a human being, and some human beings can do that. (laughs) Apothecary. Hmm? Empathetic joy, Susan says, that the really appreciating, in the way that you see anybody with an extraordinary talent, you see a great athlete do something amazing, a 15-foot pole vault, or you see a great dancer, or you hear a great violinist, or a great dancer do something or other. And it's just celebrating the fact that a human being did that, that's wonderful. David. Of course it was a fabulous read. He was here
2: recently, you know, and um, and, and outspoken as a fundraiser. But um, Mm. the book itself is extraordinary. But the two things that struck me, and which I really needed, that's why I focused on them, was what inspired him. Because after all, as amazing as he is, he yet remains a human being. And it struck me over and over again how inspired he was by the people, and you'd say, these are my kind of people and what he meant by, he says that over and over, were when he would come into contact with people whose situations from any external perspective was dire, and they were joyous, yeah. happy, and alive, and engaged, and he immediately
1: mm-hmm.
2: picked up on that, responded that, and took that in mm-hmm. as a way maybe he slept less but maybe he took this in as a way of keeping himself mm-hmm. buoyant and the other thing i really liked was there was a man and i you live in new england so happened the early part of paul farmer's career they made a connection it was a man who had worked very hard in his life and had amassed, through to being the head of a construction company a certain amount of money and his goal in life was to be able to by the time he died had Spent every last penny that he had earned in the, um, what's to say, for the benefit of other people. And particularly, he saw Paul Farmer as a vehicle for this. So at one point, he said to Paul, very directly, he said, You know, every once in a while, I get this real desire to give this all up and go and just work in the hospital with you. Mm -hmm. And Paul Farmer said, don't you dare. Yeah. <laughs> and what that said to me was the profound recognition that each of us,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, may have a very different role. Yeah. But they're all valuable, they're all to be respected, they're all to be honored. And that isn't so much that we all get to be Paul Farmer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that we really get to find out what that
0: is. Uh huh. You know. I bet I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm excited about the fact that you just saw him here.
2: Well, actually, it was a $150 fundraiser. So, four of the six people in my book reading group went, and um, I just gave them a little money I did I myself did not speak. What he did was he spoke for a while and then he circulated. You know, uh-huh. So, people got to have some
0: contact. I would like to circulate around with him. I that would be a good thing. <laughs> Yeah, well well, he should, <laughs> well he should, well he should. So anyway, I recommend this enormously to you. So now I wanna put those three things together about, um, how is this practice that we do of mindfulness related to being able to see things in a broader way This is a famous barking dog solo. Being able to remember what's important, not probably the 32 emails, but uh, is my heart alive today in some way? And how do we keep our level of inspiration up so that we do whatever it is that we do, whether it's we earn the money to give to Paul Farmer or we actually walk five hours across up and down uh, Haitian mountains and dales to find one person to treat because you heard about them, so how do we how do we keep our own inspiration up so I think about i think about i was thinking about it particularly uh, because i wanted to I wanted to talk about uh, <coughs> The double role of uh, meditation practice um, for people, you know, for people in their daily lives, here we are all folks who are just here for the morning, for people who have come on retreat, and to just have in the mind that uh, the top level of understanding about meditation is that the mind settles down and relaxes lots of people who come on retreat. I read through all of the uh, retreat um, registration forms and there's a question that says, why did you come? And it's very touching because everybody has come because they have a life in essence and everybody has written, you know, this happened to me, that happened to me, and all the things that happen to people happen to those people. Do you know how in the morning sometimes, we didn't do it this morning, but sometimes we say out loud the people that we're thinking about and, and really offer prayers for them. And when you listen, you hear a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you get to hear about how, how just a, a panoramic display of the pains of the world, not only in body, but in soul and in heart. So you read those and you see a panoramic display of the troubles and people say, I just needed a little time. And I think that there are two levels of the time. You need a little time just to rest because carrying around troubles is big. And you come here, and uh, especially if you come on retreat, it's kind of like a hospital. Nobody talks, it's hushed voices, the food is very healthy, you go to bed early. (laughs) 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 It's like a hospital should be. We take good care of people. It's a consoling atmosphere. We try not to upset them. We do not plan for the the deer to have had babies just now to lift up people's hearts, but they have had babies just now, so that lifts up everybody. The turkeys have had babies, so that lifts up everybody's heart. Uh, but beyond that, it's really because, with the calm down mind and the slightly buoyed up heart, there is the possibility of seeing in a new way and getting it that we could see in a new way. And that the specific deep work of mindfulness, whether it's not on retreat or it is on retreat, is really being able to see how things really are, what really is important and how the habits and what the habits of the mind are, one's own mind are, that keep preventing us from remembering what's important. You know, when we get upset about something and then afterwards we realize, oh, I was so upset about that. Really, in the context of a life, it's not that important, but I was so upset about it. And what were the habits of the mind that caused that upset to come and to stay so long and how to see those habits operative in our own self and change them. When I gave the instructions for sitting this morning, I remember saying that one way of thinking about this meditation is to just sit happily. It's like saying live happily. That'd be an instruction, live happily. I like telling people that the wedding ring that uh, Paul Revere gave to his wife he was a silversmith, you know, and he uh, engraved in the ring uh, the words, Live contented. That's a great piece of, I mean, you know, you think of writing, I love you, or uh, forever, or whatever, but live contented. Imagine that if we all had grown up in families where people said, Live contented, be happy. But, uh, first of all, carrying with that the understanding that you could if you kept in mind what was important. If you kept in mind that there's a frame larger than what's happening of it's amazing. I think one of the reasons that people uniformly are so picked up by the turkeys and the baby deer is that they're amazing you know that you go along and your mind suddenly is in a snarl about something or other. He said, she said, when I see them again, when I go home, I'll take this up. And this turkey goes by. And it's not only improbable looking, you know, because it's, it looks like it's made out of spare parts, but <laughs> it's remarkable. It goes by. Here comes this turkey baby, looks just like its parent. That's remarkable also. And the remarkableness of life becomes the bigger frame in which one's own personal problem, so to speak, is unfolding. So we don't stage it, but if we could, we would. (laughs) The instruction that I gave this morning about let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and just stay that way, which I got from my friend, Ajahn Amaro, really suggests that you could I don't think it's the habit that most of us have. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease and and let it stay that way. I, I added the instruction, when seductions come through in the mind, think me. You know this thing, a thought goes through in the mind. Sometimes people say, I can't stop thinking. I can't stop thoughts from coming into my mind. I think, well, hooray, it's a terrible thing. If, I mean, It's a neurological accident when we can't think anymore. It's supposed to think. Thinking continues the whole life, like breathing continues the whole life. It's not about not having thoughts. It's not about (coughs) achieving a perfect silence in the mind. It's having a relationship to the thoughts that's easy. Here comes a thought. There are all kinds of neutral thoughts like, it's cool in here today or, it's a pleasure to be, it's not even so neutral, but it's a pleasure to be quiet. I mean, those are the easy thoughts. But then here comes a thought that's uh, a provocative thought. That person shouldn't have said that to me, you know? That goes, and it could either just go through, or it's kind of, um, do you know the, the when Alice in Wonderland falls, falls down the rabbit hole, she finds a um, bottle that says, drink me, and then she drinks it and it gets way too big or way too small. There are thoughts that come through the mind but a little side says, think me. You know, it comes by. You know, let's just uh, think me for a while and uh, we could have a little discussion about who said what about whom and tie the mind in a little knot and get mad about it. And I think to myself, it's like it's having someone come and ask you to dance and you say, no, I'm gonna sit this one out. Thank you very much. And the habit passed. That doesn't mean that we give up thinking in our lives and become foolish and don't contemplate things or think them through or come to a better idea. But there are habit thoughts, mostly who we're mad at, who we have a grudge about, what we can't be happy, uh, what prevents us from being happy, if only thoughts, if only I had this or that or the other or a different something, different partner, a different job, a different life, a different, if only my child, my this, my that were different, then I could be happy. And the thought goes through and the un, um, the unattended mind grabs it, kind of like a think me, like a bone and starts to gnaw on it and the mind gets tight, and the body gets tight, and suffering happens, and then it's very hard to put it down. I've been telling people on this retreat that uh, as time goes by, my meditation instructions, which started out very elaborate years ago, have uh, gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. For myself, uh, as I'm sitting, um, I try to sit happily, and things go through. And uh, that's not only in the city, in my life. So my two instructions, since last year, really, it's come down to two instructions. I say to myself, don't pick it up as it's going by. And then if I pick it up, I say to myself, put it down. (laughs) I actually think they must be good instructors because I said that the other night up in a talk and I got a flood of notes about I like those instructions. <laughs> how? But mostly people wanted to know, how do you put it down? <laughs> As to, the pick it up, you know that. Uh, yeah.
1: Huh? Sometimes it's too late.
0: Right? Well, it's not. It's too not. For the picking up. Parts, <laughs> but for the <laughs> yeah. Well, it's too late for the picking up. Often it's too late for the picking up because we pick up habitually and without and and reflexively. I think it's a really good thing. It's a a remarkable uh, level of, um, of understanding to be able to say, oh, here comes that thought that if I start this, there's gonna be no end of trouble for me, so I'm not gonna do it now. I'll do it another time. Does not mean about being thoughtless or not planning or anything. It's the kind of, it's again, the thoughts that are envy thoughts, greed thoughts, irritability thoughts generally contentious with life thoughts, it has to be different for me to be happy. <coughs> because really the, 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 the great insight of the Buddha, the great insight of every wisdom tradition and every wisdom teaching, is that nothing has to change out here in order for your own heart to relax. Nothing has to change in order for your ability to love to manifest itself that that's a great thing about human beings. And it's wonderful if things change. I mean, there are things in my life that, you know, I, first of all, my personal life, maybe I would change this or that or the other. But in the world, there are a lot of things I would change. I think to myself, when I think about this person online. this man does not know <laughs> that he has 32 unanswered emails and that he also doesn't know that there are one billion homeless people in the world and half the world goes to sleep hungry every day, and that there are wars in dozens, maybe hundreds of places, not just in the places we read about in the newspaper. A lot of things that are wrong in the world and a lot of things that could get fixed if we actually knew about it. It's actually a lot of things that would get fixed if people did know about it, one of my great sources of dismay is that I think that the nature of human beings by and large is that they're kind. And if the evening news actually told people what's actually the case in the world, look what happened after that tsunami. a great outpouring of, of goods and, and help and all kinds of succor going to the people who were in trouble. I think people are by and large kind. If the evening news told about what's really going in the world and how it could be changed and how world hunger could be ended quite easily, actually, if there was a a determination to do it, it would happen. I think, how did I just get there from that? (laughs) <laughs> Don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. No. So there are things to think about, but to think about things in a non-contentious way, not to pick up the things that will tie the mind up in contention. Contention, by the way, is a, I decided is a good word because it it um, it covers both the things that I am angry about or you know, mad at so-and-so, or this one did this. It also uh, concerns the things that I feel that I need to have, the things that have brought up greed or lust in me. Because as soon as there's something that I need or something that I have to get rid of, it means my mind is in contention with my life at this moment. That there's something about it that's unsatisfactory to me. It has to be different. And it's actually there has to be part that the Buddha would have said is the gist of suffering that I'd like it to be different that's not suffering it, it, that's what that's what motivates people like Paul Paul Farmer it's what motivates anybody who does anything to make anybody better to teach or to doctor or to do anything for anybody else or to parent is because we'd like things to be better we want things to be better To need to have them different right now and to be contentious in the mind because they aren't is really the the center of what the Buddha taught and what every wisdom tradition teaches about suffering. To be um, excited or zealous about change, yes. To need it to be different now is the suffering piece So I've been telling people that uh, there are the moment-to-moment experiences of freedom that happen when people, for instance, sit and meditate. Was there a moment while we sat this morning where you felt good? Could you have said retrospectively, uh, I wouldn't even ask how many people sat in complete and
1: <laughs>
0: ease for the whole time that we sat. But how many people, ref- thinking back, said <coughs> there were some moments in which I was just content to be sitting here. I think that actually one of the things about meditation practice is it trains the mind. That that it, it illuminates the mind to that possibility, which is the first piece of inspiring people to make a, to make a change when they're not contented. If you know that contented mind is a possibility, not only for saints and gurus and people who have meditated forever, contented mind is a possibility. It's just a mind at this moment that doesn't need anything to be different. This moment is complete unto itself. And not necessarily because it's pleasant. It could be a moment sitting here in which you're a little cold, it's a little cold in here this morning, or you're a little sleepy, or a little this, or a little that. Nobody here has a life without a problem in it now. So if you thought they'd say, but to say, you know, this moment's okay. This moment's okay, and my mind is at ease. So a mind at ease is a human possibility. Moment to moment. I think it moment-to-moment moment illuminates that possibility. I think it moment-to-moment moment also um, cultivates the habit of the mind staying like that. The more experience the mind has in being peaceful, the less uh, loathed it, the more loath it is to mess it up in some way. I, 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 uh, I remember once uh, asking a taxi driver years ago in New York where Uh, It was actually a car service driver would pick me up somewhere because I had to be somewhere for a certain appointment which had seemed to me at the time so important but you know afterwards nothing seems, in the moment it seems so crucial. And his job was to get me there on time. That was his job all day picking up people and getting them to these venues on time and it was a complete traffic jam in New York. It was the 50th anniversary of the UN and nothing moved. My car was inching forward. And here I was feeling like my whole career depended on my getting to I don't even remember what the thing was. And my whole <laughs> career depended on me. So I'm getting and I'm supposed to be you know, teaching about, you know, you take what you get. And he's this taxi driver he's driving. And he's supposed to get me there on time. And I say to him, uh, do you like your job? He said, Yeah, sure, it's okay. I said, uh, "Is it uh, you know, is it uh, stressful for you? Is it a headache for you like today? He said, well, yeah. it could be if I let it. Uh, <laughs> so of course, when I got to where I was going, I taught about the taxi driver as being in, you know, I mean, because everybody, you don't have to be a Buddha to know that things happen. You can either decide to take it on and snarl up about it or not. If if Sometimes he can. That was a really good point that you made about sometimes too late and you've already smiled, and then what are you gonna do? There's the moment to moment experience of freedom that comes that if you pay attention to it, you say, I wanna live like this. And there's the arriving at equanimity, which is really the point of practice. It's so important to know that equanimity does not mean blah. Equanimity does not mean tranquility or calm, however lovely those states are. I don't think of myself as a particularly tranquil person or a particularly calm person. Um, It's not exactly my nature. I'm actually quite, I have a lot of energy, I'm enthusiastic, I get excited easily, I get anxious easily. All of that are my genetics. That's just what's true. Equanimity does not have to do with calm necessarily. It has to do with being able to say, okay, this is what's happening. And what would be a wise thing to do in response to it? You could be excited in it. You could be um, really happy in it. You could be even sad in it. But equanimity is a space larger than what's happening that says, all right, this is really what's happening. Whoa. There are, what I'm hopeful that I am saying is that there are two ways to arrive at that place of equanimity that the Buddha taught was the highest goal of practice. One of them is just through practice so that it's a habit. Do I wanna go there? No, I don't wanna go there. My mind about to flare itself up. The other is arriving at equanimity through wisdom. So this is through habit and cultivating the habit of equanimity. The other way is through the arising of wisdom and the particular wisdom that the Buddha taught or the particular three characteristics of wisdom that the Buddha taught are knowing that things are temporal, that everything is gonna change, that what's happening now isn't gonna be happening after a while, that this moment is just this moment it actually has the for me has always had um, first had the sense of uh, uh, making me more courageous when my situation was uncomfortable, and be able to say to myself, you know, this really isn't going to last. You can you can do this, whatever it is. I think ultimately what it has more become is. Um, making me alert to the fact that everything is temporal, not only what's uncomfortable, everything is temporal. And including what what's pleasant, everything. What's pleasant and what's quite, what we would call neutral. And it's actually made me really cognizant to the fact that there aren't any plain days, there are just days. And I really wanna be awake in all of them. I don't wanna be waiting for the good time that I'm gonna have Uh, a week from Saturday or two weeks from Sunday or something. I want today to count because I'm not going to have it again today. So it's not out of a desperate kind of, uh uh-oh, time is passing, but out of a recognition, really, time is passing. This is the only day we'll have today. Don't really want to mess it up. I think about that, you know, I I have a very long, very long-term relationship with my husband. Uh, We are coming up on our 50th wedding anniversary. Is that, (laughs) that blows me away. (laughs) I actually think that's amazing, Um, because it actually means, well, you must be up to that, Susan. Uh, 48. 48. 48. How long have you known Milton? Okay so we are on 53 Uh, but even (coughs) in a long relationship all of a sudden for some reason there's like a little happens and I think to myself wait a minute do I want to spend one minute of my life messing it up with this because whatever you know somebody does something it's a, it's a foolish thing to do it annoys the other person because it just happens to tick them in the place that they get annoyed and I think to myself, I don't have another shot at today. Do I want to discuss this one more time or do I want to say let's go after 50 years is it likely to change you know? I'm all going to have one more discussion about you really don't get this about me or that is it or do I wanna say you wanna go out for a pizza? I mean, I have two choices and the pizza's the <laughs> better choice. Actually.
1: <laughs>
0: I think that that's one of the sequelae you've actually seen, that there's a limited number of days. And the truth is you don't know how many days. You know, I, we tend to think, well, you get old. I certainly have the potential of less days than I had when I was 20. I'm not gonna live to be 120. But you never know at any age how many days you have. There is no day that's expendable, really. So I I have so much of a sense of that. The first one that the Buddha said is you see about the temporality of things, you're not so frightened and more appreciative of them. The second is really getting it about how struggle with your current situation, whatever it is, is suffering. Sometimes when you say the second noble truth, It comes out as the cause of suffering is craving. But I actually don't like the phrase it. I don't know the poly of it. And maybe it's not even the most apt translation because I don't think the cause of suffering is craving. I think craving is already suffering. Craving is what's suffering. It doesn't lead to the mind that needs it to be otherwise. So the ability to say, well, It's what I've got. It's like this. It's what I've got. That's the second of the insights. And um, the third of the insights that the Buddha said was important to see is the interconnectedness of things. The fact that things happen in certain ways because other things have already happened. that nothing happens randomly out of a vacuum, that there's a cause of everything. It doesn't mean it has a deep cosmic purposeful cause, at least not for me, My, it, it might be true. And there might be people who might have a cosmology that says, um, if this tree falls over at this time and you happen to be standing there, you know, it was all ordained, it was your time. Well, in a certain sense, it was your time, but it—you know—I'm I'm not sure it was your time for any reason other than you were standing near that tree at that time. That doesn't have to have a, a a purposeful meaning. I don't think I don't think it's a vengeful or a spiteful cosmos. I think it's a lawful cosmos. I think things happen because other things have happened. That gives me a lot of hope about changing the situation in the world about making a difference in the homelessness or the poverty or the hunger in the world because they're not there accidentally, they're there because of greed, hatred and delusion and they could get changed if people's hearts changed. So seeing that things happen with as a result of causes, if I see that in relationship, Let's even go back to the same discussion in personal relationship. I can either take, uh, uh, if something happens and my feelings are hurt after so many years, how could he do a thing like that? And then take it personally, if he really loved me, which is how we then personalize that, would never do a thing like that. And that's a completely a nonsense statement. And you do a thing like that because it's your nature to do a thing like that. And it's your habitual way of responding. And it has nothing to do with love me or not love me. It's just what's happening. And I can choose to take it personally or sometimes not and say, this is just the moment unfolding. This is just, everybody is just who they are. And, you know, it's like the barking dog solo. <laughs> but, you know, And that dog, in addition to barking, is probably lovely and keeps that neighbor company and defends the house and there are lots of other wonderful things. If, it, if, it, if it's only characteristic was barking, it's, it's, it's owner wouldn't keep it. It's gotta have other characteristics as well. So does everyone. And so do all the people in my life who caused me any kind of with, with them. They have the thing that's the cause of that stirring in the mind, and they have all their other things that are the cause of everything that ever happened to them. And everything that is happening to them. And if when I see that, instead of having um, being in a in personal contention with part, people in my life and parts of my life and my life itself, I, I have the opportunity of saying, it is so far out. Can you believe it after fifty years still doing the same ridiculous dance? and <laughs> you know, Or can you believe? Can you believe the turkeys? Can you believe these baby deer? Can you believe it? That the sun came up this morning exactly where it was supposed to come up, on the, t- on the 25th of May. It's amazing. Are these, the
1: three, are these called three noble truths? These are
0: called the three characteristics of experience, Susan. And they are that everything is impermanent, that suffering is the result of struggle, and that everything is interconnected, that all things are interconnected. They are either caused by something, or they are at the same time caused by something, caused by everything and an aspect of everything. That the fact that I am here has to do with the fact that my parents met each other and liked each other well enough to create a child, but has to do with their parents being where they were, and their parents being where they were, and their parents being where they were. And the fact that Marco Polo made his expeditions, which changed the political and economic climate of Europe, which caused the immigration of Jews from Eastern Europe to the United States, so Marco Polo is part of my karma. Everything conspires to make me here. And it couldn't be other than this in those moments in my life which are not as many as I would like them to be, in which I am able to say, it couldn't be different. I'm a contented person. Couldn't be different. This is what it is. And I'm an inspired person to make the future different because it's part what I do and what everybody does is a part of it. Sometimes people ask about what does uh, what does spiritual practice have to do with social activism? Um, but it's so clear to me that we don't do this in a vacuum, and that the the awareness of uh, the potential of human being, the potential of myself, to live as a contented person means that everyone else has that potential in some different way. You know, I actually think people have different natures. I think, I've been thinking about this a lot. Not everybody is born the same way. I had four children. They were all different in their natures when they were born, all wonderful. And some of them more by nature contented and the others a little bit more high-sprung. We just come out differently. People are different. And maybe not all people, are, are, but I think that we all have the possibility of calming down a little bit and making wiser choices. Imagine if the whole world calmed down a little bit and made wiser choices. Not everybody has to become a complete bodhisattva, just a little bit wider, wiser choices on everybody's part. For myself, it would be great. You know, one of the reasons that I'm glad to be back, I'm glad to see all of you, is very good for me to teach Dharma. It always lifts my spirits a lot, you know? It actually doesn't matter to me if I listen to someone else's Dharma talk on my own. (laughs) It doesn't. (laughs) It's actually very inspiring to remember that human beings are essentially good and they could do this. Don't you think? I think we should sit a little bit as the end of our time together. We might even do this as a three minute uh, reflection on the three characteristics of experience. You can just notice that as you sit, every breath comes in and goes out. It arises and it passes away. That's actually a direct possibility of um, experiencing impermanence. It's here and it's gone. Sometimes people do that as a meditation practice. They say to themselves, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. Might also, as you sit, thinking about um, the awareness that clinging in the mind in any way needing things to be different is really the, is really suffering. That the world is what it is, our lives are what they are, our bodies are what they are. But in this moment, we have the option of a mind that's at ease. See if we can do that. My friend Steve Cope, who's a yoga teacher, often quotes one of his uh, gurus, Swami Kripalu, who talking about the possibility of uh, seeing in the widest possible context that everything is lawfully what it is and that the mind can relax Steve says, Swami Kvapalo says, everything is absolutely okay. So sometimes I say to myself, everything is absolutely okay. And except from the times when my mind is not ready to relax and say, okay, that's true, I like to hear that. So see what happens if you say to yourself, in your mind, everything is absolutely all right. And then just to reflect for a moment on the fact that we're all here at this moment. Each of us popped into this world on different days and different places. Everybody couldn't be other than who they are, people who have been here for 12 years, and people have just come now, and everybody's path winds with this cause and that cause, and this impetus, and that it change. And here we meet in this day in this morning, all of us together. And we need it for all of us to be here, for the chemistry in the room to be exactly what it is this morning. And will each of us go out of here however we are from this morning and bring out whatever we've thought about or felt about. So really the karma of this moment or this morning spreads from us. May it spread in a good way. May we be emissaries of contentment in a world that's not so contented. May our beings remind other people that there's a way to live in which we are uh, friendlier, kinder, more thoughtful, for our own well-being and for the well-being of others, or for a changed world. The formal way to end a practice session together, which we don't so often do, but which I moved to do this morning, is may the merit of our being together in this way, of our bringing our hearts and our good intention and our attention to our own selves, and our process, and our lives, and hearing about the truth of things. May the merit that we accrue be offered for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful, may all beings be happy, may all beings come to the end of suffering.